The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, a big word, design. It means a lot. Let's get started. In our business world today, everyone is expected to focus on execution. Of course they are. However, more than ever, we have a critical need to innovate. Innovate everything, anything, cars, shoes, homes, the way we live, everything we touch, everything we do across the full spectrum. And at the end of that spectrum, we might say perhaps, we need to innovate enterprise software. Uh Aha. So what's the solution to this dilemma? Design. Now, let me level set here. The notion of design isn't just for people who have the D on their sweatshirt as designated designers. We have something now called design thinking methodology. If we leverage it the right way, in the right places, with the right people, the right attitude, the right mindset, the right environment, we can solve the problems we know, and we can even discover new problems and their solutions. So I have a question for our listeners. Wouldn't your company benefit from the best practices of successful innovation teams? I think you would. And wouldn't you benefit from learning how to scale design thinking globally, because most businesses are, to enrich the ways we all work and live? And I know the answer is yes. We have a stellar panel today. Great thought leaders. What backgrounds they have. Wait till you hear who we've got. So let's get started. The experts speak. First up on the panel is Jason Maiden. He's the Vice President of Design at Mark One. And here's the quote from Jason to kick us off. He says, I am not a designer, and designer with a capital D. I am simply and humbly a bridge between the generations long past and the generations that have yet to come. Oh, Jason, that's so profound. Thank you for that great quote. Welcome to Future of Business with Game Changers. How are you, Jason? I'm very well. How are you, Bonnie? Wonderful. Thanks for joining me. Tell me about your quote. Great start. Go ahead. Yeah, wonderful. You know, it really connects back to what you said, um, how to leverage design thinking to solve systemic problems and also look forward to where design is headed. The reason why you explicitly use the word bridge is because often designers are taught or encouraged to think about what's next, to be future-minded. But there's significant learning from looking backwards, from understanding what people have done before us. I'm understanding that people have already probably solved this problem with less technology, less resources, less information, less intelligence than we ever had in today. So simply all I'm saying is if we simplify ourselves, we simplify our processes, we democratize our tools, and we allow ourselves to understand that we are at the service of humanity, not at the delight, not to create excitement, not to create wonderment, but simply to serve humanity. We can look backwards, and that can help propel us forward. Because there are a lot of great innovations that have all been derived from simpler innovations that were designed hundreds of years ago. So for me as a designer, 
I find my greatest inspiration in history because someone has probably already done it better than me. Now it's my chance to propel forward and edit it and simplify it so that it's relevant, it's digestible, and it's transferable for today's user and for today's economy. Jason, I hear humility in there. In everything you say, I hear a quality of humbleness, and you, if I can use that word, and humility. You're saying, hey, I'm doing it. It matters. It's making a difference. But I come from a long line of people who have innovated over the years, and I'm doing it for future generations as well. Would you say that humility is something that would be a qualification or a quality of a good designer? In my opinion, yes. Um, I think that humility is the lifeblood of a great designer. Because if you place yourself in the shoes of other people, you realize that we are all connected. There are certain interdependencies between just humanity in general. And we often believe that design is something that you aspire to become, rather than simply looking at design as a, a byproduct of just existence. You know, when people say that um, necessity breeds innovation, I mean, you mm-hmm. really see it show up in societies that have less technology or what we call third world societies or less resources. These people are happier and live simpler lives and, and they do it through using simple design principles. They hack their environment. They create opportunities for themselves. And they don't think about it as design. They think about it as survival. They think about it as, as just how they live. So for me, I can't do what I do without being humble, without realizing that someone is better than me. Someone is doing this in a very, very deep level, and they probably have less resources. So for me, I just I don't take myself seriously. I try to be a student of the world, and I try to make sure that I'm here to serve the people that I design for. Thank you, Jason. What an interesting and great way to kick off our conversation. Let's have our second panelist join you. It's George Kemble. He is co-founder and global director of the Stanford D School, and he'll tell us what that is in a minute. And his quote from George is, For innovation, prioritize learning over expertise, experimentation over planning, and collaboration over individual excellence. Welcome, George Kemble. This sounds revolutionary to me, or is it perhaps evolutionary. Welcome. How are you, George? Hi, Bonnie. It's great to be here. Thank you. Talk to me. So then, I think this is one of the things that surprised me as I uh, moved from being an entrepreneur of startups out in Silicon Valley to being an entrepreneur inside an educational institution um, at Stanford. Um, I, I th- and I think we find ourselves in a moment of pretty profound change, where not so long ago, what what helped us find our way forward was um, the expert the expert knowledge that we had and our ability to, to plan our way forward. And the, the thing I think we find ourselves going into, and I think we can all feel it at some level, whether or not we can put words to it, is we're entering times of much greater complexity. Um, we're moving into a world that's continuously changing, not just going through a few changes, but continuously changing. Um, and we're facing challenges that we don't really know the answer to. So if, in that world, in worlds of change, it's not what we know that matters. It's our capacity to learn that matters. So that's why I would say focus on learning over expertise. Um, in terms of planning, I think planning is a good exercise to help you think through the, um, the issues that you might be facing. But usually by the time we finish our plan, it's either wrong or the world has changed and it's irrelevant. And I think that we're, um, what we find is if you have a bias towards action and take experimental steps, that will inform what you should do next as opposed to trusting that you can come up with all the um, – that you know what the right path is forward. So that's why we bias towards experimentation over planning. And the last thing is if we're facing challenges we don't know the answer to, it's sort of – they're big challenges like um, sustainability or the environment or water or energy or education or the financial um, industry or healthcare. And those – 
you don't get to solve just by an individual or solo act. It's a collaborative act. You need the perspective of many points of view. So what, that's why we bias over collaboration, over individual excellence. And what I find is when we get our students to work this way in collaborative, diverse teams with a bias towards action and experimentation, with this, um, this attitude of learning, then they, one, grow as individuals and they surprise themselves with the potential innovations they come up with and the impact they can have on the world. Thank you, George. Great explanation. And I'm going to venture out here and say that I hear humility in what you're saying, going back to one of Jason's key words, that in order to prioritize learning over expertise, people have to say, there is more for me to learn. I want to learn. I cherish and am passionate about learning on top of the expertise that I bring to the table in this job or in this role. Would you say there's that element of humility in, in your statement as well? I, I would say two things. One is it definitely requires humility in terms of it's been, it's been eye-opening for both our faculty and our students that used to be valued based on what they know, and now mm-hmm. we need to be valued based on what we don't know and our, and our capacity to jump into that. Um, so that definitely takes <laughs> humility, and it's a bit, it feels a bit <laughs> yes. vulnerable and exposing. But I think there's yes. something I'd, I would tie with humility, because I definitely agree that you need it, but I think you need courage, courage plus humility. So the courage is the, the, the willingness and bravery to act even when you don't know all the answers and take a step forward. Um, and then at the same time, once you take a step forward, the humility is required to sort of look around and say, do I need to question some of my fundamental assumptions? And it's this, this, this combination of courage to act, humility to reflect, courage to act, humility to reflect that I think is what builds that evolutionary way towards design. Thank you very much. Great information from you, George. And let's bring on our third panelist. It's Sam Yen, recently announced as the Chief Design Officer at SAP. Congratulations, Sam. And Sam sent me a quote that's just five words. It's a proverb. And before I read the quote, Sam, I looked it up, and it was first found in the work of Sir Thomas Overby all the way back in 1613, if you can believe that. It's also the title, hang on, kids, the title of a 1966 top hit for The Temptations at Motown, number three on the pop charts and number one on the R&B charts. So talk about a quote that just rocks from the 1600s to the 1900s. And the quote is, very simply, beauty is only skin deep. Welcome, Sam Yen. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, Thanks for joining us. Talk to me. Mm -hmm. I I, I chose this quote because, uh, you know, in the business world, when, when people hear about the term design, they, they automatically associate it with beauty. They think about colors, type, typography, fonts, um, and, you know, just this, this notion of art. And in the business world, you know, there's the, you, you have kind of all the business acumen, there's a lot of technology uh, discussions, but there's this notion that design is for designers and there's a design team that could come in and, 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 and just make something look pretty. And I think you know what we uh, what I want to talk about uh, in, in this conversation is that it goes much deeper than that. You know, design really matters in a complex world uh, because when we try, to, you know, design brings a point of view and actually is a, is a guide through complexity. It's it's something that takes um, uh, a complex world that we're looking at and tries to simplify and purify things to to an essence to allow a user to navigate this complex world that we live in. Um, a lot of people think of you know design as you know the, the finished product, but mm-hmm. you know I, I think all three of us as, as panelists, uh, I think we're going to explore the term design as actually a verb, something that's actionable, something that we could all learn and do uh, within our organizations. 
Thank you, Sam. I have a question for you. When you talk about design as not being just that polished, pretty in the package with the red bow or the shiny wrapping end product, is there a way to to predict or think about the length of the design process? Because we all know people want to have a measurable goal, an end goal. They want to say, yes, in this period of time, I can fulfill my job or my role, whether it's an innovation team or an individual contributor. So what should people expect about a, a little bit, Sam, about the, the process of design? Is it something that could go on for years and you never get to have that thing in the shiny box? Is it, is it a team effort where you basically pass the baton is what I'm asking? Yeah, I think I think one way to, to, to think about design is it's an investment that you look at, um, that, that you put in at the beginning of a process to make sure that you're actually building something uh, that's going to be meaningful to the target audience, the person that's actually going to be using your product or service. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, while it's true that you could say um, it's a never-finished process, you could continue to iterate, you could continue to refine, um, I think that the point is just to invest the time at the beginning, um, and you can time box it, but to make sure that you're going through those exercises, you know, again, to, to figure out who it is that you're designing for and what the actual need that you're trying to solve before just taking uh, a given problem and just assuming that that's the problem that the world needs. Oftentimes, that exercise in actually going out, uh, asking the questions of who it is that you're really trying to build for and what are their latent needs um, yields the kinds of innovations that people are looking for. Thank you, Sam. I have one more question before we circle back and do our what's in your cup today. Uh, question is, is brainstorming the antithesis of good design, or can you get good design out of a brainstorm, a forced put people in the room, lock the door, give them a, a whiteboard and a lot of ink, and say, go design something? Is that the opposite of good design, or can they coexist? I, I, I think brainstorming is just one of many techniques uh, to explore solution spaces, to get um, different points of views into the room, evaluate those things, iterate on on those capabilities. Uh, but there's it's one uh, in a in a big toolbox of different techniques uh, that ultimately again tries to seek what is the important problem that you're trying to solve and what's an optimal solution for that particular uh, for that particular need. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is The Future of Business with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP Services. And if you're trying to figure out what we're talking about, well, it's why design matters in a complex world. Now I have a very interesting question for my three esteemed panelists. want to get to know them a little better. We already know they're very smart, but we want to know a little bit about their personality and their likes and dislikes. So Jason Maiden, tell me where you're calling from and what's in your cup today. What are you drinking or what do you wish you were drinking? Jason? All right. Um, so this is Jason, and I am calling in from Palo Alto, California, um, approximately maybe about three blocks away from Stanford's campus. And what's in my cup? Well, I just had a great – I have a great morning ritual. Um, I drink warm lemon water in the morning. And the reason why I drink warm lemon water is I'm a huge believer in just flushing out the toxins from my body from the day before, um, both mentally and physically. I tend to just spend my mornings kind of processing what I've experienced the day before, level setting on what I want to experience today, and then just trying to prioritize where I want to spend my energy. So I know for me as a person who, you know, is a former athlete, I've worked with athletes, I love the concept mm -hmm. of human performance. In order for me to have premium performance, I need to put premium fuel in my body. And so most often when we wake up, we get dressed, we leave our house. We don't do the same thing for our car. We turn our car on, we warm it up, we let it sit, and then we pull off. And so I try to warm my body up before I move. I try to warm my mind up before I go and actually have to jump into an activity because it allows me to be a peak performance. And so lemon water is one way to do that. It just flushes the toxins out, 
gets me ready physically, and then I'm able to flush the toxins out mentally by listening to certain types of music and just centering myself and then being prepared for my day. So my morning ritual really consists of level setting so that I can be a peak performance throughout my day and all my endeavors. Jason, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you have designed a great morning for yourself. And that <laughs> that is, you are a designer. You say you're not a designer. You have designed a very interesting life with mindfulness and purpose and goals. I applaud you. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. George Kimball, I won't ask you to top that. But, George, what are you drinking or what do you wish you were drinking? <laughs> well, I, I, love, I love Jason's um, comment about clearing the toxins from your body. I would say... Um, each morning, one of the one rituals I was I have been able to preserve, or I would fight to preserve, as um, as I've had kids and your personal time, you sort of lose that. Is my ritual of coffee? So I think I add toxins to, to my body. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very very hot, very hot, very strong coffee is uh, is sort of a very important thing for me, even after I quiet myself and sort of from a mindfulness way. But the thing I wanted to say is what I'm drinking it in is very unexpected. Someone designed something that I didn't think was at all. Uh, interesting or needed, but it has become part of my life. So I, I have it in a, a little um, coffee thermos, which is super small. It's a tiny coffee thermos. And it's mm-hmm. probably about a third the size of a regular one. It looks like a baby coffee thermos. My mother-in-law gave it to me for some holiday present, and she hands it to me. She goes, here's a, here's a little coffee thermos. So I'm looking at it almost wondering, what am I going to do with this? She goes, well, you can keep it's so small you can keep your coffee in your pocket. And I'm like, why in the world would I want to carry my coffee in my pocket? And it turns out it's the best thing. I carry It keeps coffee hot for the entire day, and I can carry coffee in my pocket. So I have my cup in the morning, and then I fill a second, this little baby little mini thermos with coffee, and I carry it in my pocket all day. So if I need just a little hit of coffee at any time, I can have it. So I've got super hot, super strong coffee in a, a super small thermos I carry in my pocket. Oh, that's a, well, there's more design for you. Somebody designed it with you in mind, George, and you have to go back and thank your mother-in-law for designing the gift. Wow, that's interesting. Never heard that one before. By the way, do you have a favorite brand or flavor of coffee? I do Pete's for me, um, and uh, I think their regular cup, um, Pete's Home home Blend, home House Blend, I think is the one I drink. And it's. Uh, I think their normal cup is probably twice the strength of most cups I I've encountered elsewhere. <laughs> okay, I call that high test. We used to call we used to call the highly leaded gasoline for the right, car right, high right. test. This this is high test. Thank you, George, for sharing. <laughs> Sam, what can I tell you? We need an amazing story from you. Or you're drinking water. You're drinking water. Sam Yen, talk to me. What are you drinking? I uh, I, I I drink a lot of green tea. Uh, you know, we we live in a very uh, we live in a very stressful world with uh, with a lot of demands on, on on each of us individually. And uh, for me, uh, you know, green tea is kind of you know this this moment of uh, of relaxfulness, and uh, you know it's the, the warm drink which uh, you know puts you in this moment of, of zen and it allows you to you know take a break from your busy day and and reflect. Um, but when you were asking the, the story, I just had an experience last week. Um, that I, that I want to share. Um, we were uh, we were having a, a big customer event um, in Vienna last week, and uh, you know the uh, at the end of this this event we ended up you know having this this fantastic meal at this uh, you know, renovated chateau, and they took us on the tour of this uh, this this amazing wine cellar, and we ended up um, at this bottle. It's this huge bottle. You know it's uh, it's one one of those five liter bottles of wine, which was uh, you know kind of goes up to your waist, and we're looking at it. <laughs> And uh, it was a, it was so I guess it was a five liter 1962 Chateau Latour, 
um, and they said that this was the prized bottle of wine for uh, you know for this uh, for this winery. So we later found out that this was this 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 bottle of wine was almost as you know was almost the price of my house. It was, it was five hundred thousand uh, dollar bottle of wine. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think the problem with seeing something like that is, you know, I'm going to be left, I think, for the rest of my life wondering what that bottle of wine actually tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes to my second question was, what do you wish you were drinking? And well, now think- we know. Oh, my goodness. I have to have a, a note here. Our The sponsor of this series, David Fowler at SAP, said he's drinking Tim Horton straight up. We had to get that in. And by the way, on radio show days, they don't let Bonnie have caffeine. I wonder why. So I've just got a nice cup of filtered water here with a little green straw in it. Green is for the money questions I'm going to be asking all of you. Not really. Uh, and Sam, a very, very interesting story. This was amazing. I want to tell my panelists you've been working so hard. I'm going to give you the gift of a break for about 90 seconds. And during that break, we're just going to collect our thoughts and we're going to design a great roundtable. I don't want to overuse the word, but you're listening to Future of Business with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP Services great panel today. We have Jason Maiden, VP of Design at Mark One, George Campbell, co-founder and global director of the Stanford D School, and Sam Yen, newly appointed chief design officer at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Our topic today is why design matters in a complex world. Stick around. We have a lot to share with you. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as business simplification, insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, business networks and supply chains, and the ever-present need for speed are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. The Future of Business with Game Changers is presented by SAP Services. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of business with Game Changers. That's exactly right. We are talking about the future of business with Game Changers, and our topic today is why design matters in a complex world. We've already established a lot of parameters and definitions of design, and we all know it's a complex world. We're going to launch into, well, about a 25-minute roundtable nonstop. We're going to kick it off with Jason Maiden. Jason, before I start with one of your notes as our opening topic, why don't you just tell us very briefly about your background in the sports world? I know everybody would find that interesting. Who are you? Where'd you come from? Give me a little overview. All right. Well, I'm Jason Maiden. I'm currently the VP of Design for Mark One, formerly Senior Design uh, Global Design Director for Jordan Brand and Nike. 
my background is in industrial design and graphic design, and for 14 years I worked at the intersection between human performance, which showed up through the lens of athletic performance, innovation, uh, which, which contains cushioning platforms, technologies, and services to help athletes improve and succeed at their sport, and then also design, uh, where we impact culture through high fashion and you know uh, trend setting with certain things that we did in Jordan brand. So I was fortunate and very blessed to touch every single one of Nike's uh, core verticals throughout my career. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that overview. Now, let me read one of the notes from your talking points, and let's get started on our roundtable. Jason told me before the show, design in and of itself is not something that should be confined to the halls of privileged institutions, nor should it be viewed as an altruistic exercise in saving the world. Real design stands in service of the greater good. Real design promotes not only diversity of thought, but also diversity of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and gender. A lot of big thoughts in here. Jason, why don't you break it down for us and get us started? Uh, yeah, you know, I think one of the core things that I've noticed about design as it's evolved into an industry, um, as Sam eloquently said earlier, you know, it's really a verb, is that it has been pulled out of the daily conversations of people who can't afford to be creative, meaning mm -hmm. uh, a population of people who simply just focus on getting the job done, taking care of their families. And this started to happen in the late 1990s early 2000s, where design was now regarded as the shiny tool that was pulled out to say that a product was finished or a service was complete or something was trendy. Um, unfortunately, what happened is it, 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 it pulled the ability to create away from people who are simply not able to understand what creativity really is. And creativity shows up in the form of curiosity, something we all have, mm -hmm. something that we're born with. It's innate to who we are as children. But then, over the years, it's transformed into this very, very, very attractive topic for intellectuals in high society where when something is designed it's regarded as extremely valuable extremely important extremely you know unobtainable and i i, I completely disagree as a designer you know in the classical sense um, my whole job was to simply educate people who felt they weren't creative um, about the fact that they actually were so when you look at athletics um, a huge part of athletic performance is improvisation improvisation is a form of creativity it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like great jazz. I mean, you play a trumpet, we play the drums, we get together, we just improvise and, and create this beautiful music. It's the same thing with sport. It's a fluidity to it. It's an artfulness to it. It's a purpose to it. And it is designed. I mean, athletes are designed. Everything they do, um, they think about every single touch point in their day. Think about routines and rituals. You think about habits. They think about um, how they show up in the world. And this is something that's applied to design. Now, when you look at that across every single facet of society, and that's why I mentioned socioeconomic status, diversity of ethnicity, and, um, and gender. We don't see it in the design industry today. The face of design does not include the face of the world. The face of design includes mm -hmm. um, people who are very similar, who have very similar backgrounds and very similar ways of thinking. And so it automatically puts people in a position to say, I can never participate in a creative economy because I do not look like these people. I cannot go to these schools. I cannot have these conversations. And to me, that, that it's heartbreaking because that's not the purpose of design. The purpose of design is inclusive. It's not exclusive. And, and because it's, it's now a very popular and attractive word, it's made it more exclusive. Um, and so for me, my hope and my dream is to democratize the tools that we use to really give away access um, to a lot of the things that George, you know, in the D school and what, you know, and Sam is doing in SAP. I mean, it's, it's about that. It's about saying that, you know what, it's something that everyone can do. It is a verb. It doesn't mean that just because you can't draw, you can't be a designer. And for me, I always say, like, I'm not a designer. I'm just a really curious person that happens to be able to draw. 
if I couldn't draw, I would figure out another way to, you know, have my curiosity come to life. And so I really hopefully and truly believe that um, we're headed towards a place where we can amplify curiosity and, and empower people and engender people to really get out there and create the world that they hope to see rather than be impacted by the world that currently exists. Thank you, Jason. Very profound. George Kimball, want to hear what you have to say on this topic. Talk to me. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, and I think the exciting thing for me is I think that's changing from um, the time where we professionalized design and it became um, something other people did for us to the time where we realized we're creative agents in our own life. Um, and, and so two things that just come to mind. One is um, I think that's the shift from an industrial economy to a post-industrial economy. So in the industrial era, when our industrial complex are the things that they, they made the things that we consumed, whether they're products or media or vehicles or hospital experiences, um, the, the companies made them and we just consume them. And I, I think um, one of the things that we're finding is this recognition of the shift of like we have a role to play in participating in the creation of the things that we encounter in our life. Um, and the, the exciting thing about it shifting is um, what we see at the D school is students who come to D school from all disciplines. They didn't necessarily self-identify as creative or as designers. They might be business students or engineering students or, or teachers, and they come and they work together on diverse teams on problems that require the combination of their points of view. Okay. You know what? Uh, Sam Yen, why don't you take up this conversation until we get George back? His line dropped. Sam, go ahead. Sure. Uh, I would love to follow on with, uh, yes. with, with Jason's comment. Uh, in Please terms do. of the the democratization of design, you know, I think, you know, the, 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 what 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 I found is um, when you talk about design, and and you talked about this at the very beginning as well, Bonnie. You know, this capital D design. There's a natural mm-hmm. distinction that you know, if I didn't study this, if I didn't go through a formal training program, that I'm not a designer, and um, what that equals is I'm not a creative person. And mm-hmm. you know, what what we're trying to do um, with Things like design thinking and, and, and things like that is is essentially what what Jason was saying: democratizing design, trying to make sure that everybody has feels that they have the potential the, uh, to be a creative person and an innovative person. I think uh, if you ask most kids, you know, are you creative? Everybody would raise their hands and say yes. You know, and, and they, would, they would jump up and down. They they paint things and they'd show you kind of you know just how they're creative. Um, when I talk to, to business people and, you know, I ask, uh, and, I, and I, ask, I pose that same question, most people put their hands down. And somewhere mm-hmm. in the educational process, um, we've lost, um, we've lost that, that sense of creativity. And, and what happens? Um, you know, you know, as we are, quote, unquote, getting smarter and we're going through our education and we go through our professional lives, somehow we've lost that sense uh, that we can innovate, that we can create new things. And I think the, you know the point of things like design thinking is just to really distill it, and and uh, you know it's it's not this mythical thing, um, because you know with simple common sense steps, you can uh, do things to to unlock um, insights, um, you know based on based on the people that you're talking to. George, why don't you uh, take up the conversation where you dropped off, and we'll clean it up. Go ahead. I think one of the things that I was mentioning is we're seeing with the students now that they come into the D school maybe with, they don't think of themselves as innovative or they don't think of themselves as creative. They might consider themselves business students or educators, like teachers or engineers. And after working on a really hard problem, like how do you help farmers in Myanmar who only make a dollar a day, or how do you redesign a fourth grade curriculum? And they use a creative process and they come up with something unexpected to themselves. All of a sudden they see themselves differently and they see that they are an innovator. They are 
they are creative. And that's that that accessibility of everyone's creative and everything's designed, I think, that Jason was talking about, that is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And the, the last point I wanted to make is it's you can't wait until graduate school or out in industry to start to help people have that rediscovery, that, that reawakening of that inner creative self that they lost along the way. But the, I think our responsibility is to, to start very early when the kids, and this is what Sam was talking about, and start when the kids already feel creative and find ways so that we don't unintentionally educate them out of it. Okay, thank you. I was going to bring that up in our next talking point. Sam Yen, I hear that you're back. The gods of uh, Radio Connection are, are wreaking havoc with us, and I know it's not by anybody's design. So, Sam, you were about to say, let me take a step back, and I think you took such a far step back that you're lying. Just, Sam, please stay close to the phone. Sam Yen, you want to continue? We're a little choppy here, but, Sam, you want to continue with where you were talking about, and we'll pick this up? Yeah, no, I, 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 what I was going what, what to say is, you know, what, what we're trying to do is, um, um, really kind of just make sure that kind of everybody feels that they have the confidence to, to be innovators. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, if, if, you, if you actually take a step back and, and you look at, you know, uh, and you try to demystify the phrase design, uh, there's actually kind of a number of steps um, that, uh, that, that, are, that, are, that are somewhat common sense, you know, going back mm-hmm. and making sure that uh, you're solving the right problem, going uh, to... Uh, to, to really define who it is that you're solving the problem for, actually going and talking and observing and, and you know, walking a mile in a person's shoes uh, to figure out and, and to really understand and to empathize, uh, empathize with, uh, you know, what, what those needs are before going out and solving a problem. You know, especially kind of in the business world, we're, we're so eager to, to take a problem and just start to optimize and start to, start to define, you know, what solutions are. But just taking that step back and making sure that you're solving the right problem. Good, thank you. And and you gave me a perfect segue, Sam Yen, to bring in uh, some talking points from George Kimball. I think you're both back on solid lines now, thank goodness. <laughs> George, uh, George, I'm going to ask you a question you probably weren't expecting. What was the what you co-founded the D School at Stanford? What was the problem that needed to be solved? What was the audience that needed to be served? And why and how did you do this? Just give us a little quick overview of that, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, in some sense, you it, it, you discover it. It becomes clear over time. <laughs> you, they don't necessarily come out fully clear, but the the process for I mean, for David was something of I went. I, I'm an alum of, and so is David, of a very small design program Stanford had for 50 years, where it was between mechanical engineering and art department, and we learned how to design products like chairs and lamps and. Um, things like that. Uh, but a lot of the alumni went out and they started companies and did things that were very different than products. And I remember I was an entrepreneur. I started a couple of companies. After um, seven or eight years, I came back to Stanford to listen to a design talk. And I just had this entrepreneurial instinct that design could be something bigger at Stanford. And then I just happened to cross paths with a former professor of mine, David, um, on the road, literally like twice in the next week. I hadn't seen him in eight years. And we started talking, and he had seen design shift um, from his organization that one of his other organizations that he started, IDEO, used to be hired to design products, but increasingly it was being hired to help companies learn how to innovate. So we could we could sense that um, we could sense that it was shifting from the design of things to an approach for innovation, and then that raised, and then all of a sudden we realized that everything is innovation challenge, except that not all the students are at the, not all the disciplines are at the table. So I think the instinct was, if we're going to really bring a creative approach to all the problems we face, if everything's a design challenge, then we need to figure out a way to nurture the creativity of all students, not just the ones that think of themselves as creative. And so we just started prototyping. This is one of the principles of being creative: is 
Um, we started talking to the students, understand where their hearts were at, what type of challenges they wanted to tackle, um, and we started prototyping in our classes. To, and I think even though the term design thinking, moving from design to design thinking was an invitation to a broader group of people, that this is something they can have in their own life. Um, and we just kept we just kept going, <laughs> empathizing with the students, prototyping the classes, empathizing with the students and faculty, prototyping the classes, and it just turned into a another startup inside of Stanford that has evolved into something where we realize design thinking is a, is a set of mindsets and behaviors, but what's really important is the students leave more confident in their ability to be creative regarding any challenge that they face in their life, whether it's a personal challenge or a professional challenge or something significant that our world faces. Thank you, George. I want to bring in now one of your talking points that goes exactly with what you're talking about. You say, if you want innovation, do not focus on it. Instead, focus on the innovators and their behaviors. Nurture the innovative behaviors. And you say, we have found you can awaken creativity in yourself and others. So briefly, I want to get Sam in on this, but briefly, uh, talk to me. If you want innovation, don't focus on it. So what do you say? You're here to innovate, but we're not going to talk about it. How does that work, George? Yeah, you know, that's, I think that's you're asking me, me to address that, and then Sam. Um, I yeah. think that that was that was a, probably one of the biggest surprises for me from being a CEO of a um, of a startup in Silicon Valley, where to then moving to uh, working with the students. So being in the valley uh, with my my startups, we were really hungry for the next innovation. And I think culturally, we were like, "What's the next big idea that's going to save the day?" Whether it's in our company or in our government or in the environmental challenges we face, we're very focused on the outcome, innovation, and think the next big idea is going to save the day. And I found by focusing on that, for some reason, it's a, it's a hit, or miss, hit or miss business. Like one in 10 of the big ideas actually work. The whole venture model is based mm-hmm. on that. And as an entrepreneur, I found that if you're not careful, you can really deplete yourself and your team. Like you're over working towards that hunger for that specific outcome. And so the unexpected thing for me is shifting from being a CEO of startups, focusing on the innovation to um, – the D school, we had an excuse to focus on the students, to, uh, to focus on the innovator, not the innovation, and really figure out what does it take, how do we create the conditions so we can nurture the behaviors, the creative behaviors of empathizing and experimenting and collaborating and that bravery of stepping into problems you don't know the answer to, and even surrounding them in a physical environment that is conducive to those behaviors. And what surprised me, if you have, the, if you have the, if you can get your eye off the hunger for the outcome just long enough to focus on the source of it and nurture that, that downstream what happens is you get innovation on a much more routine basis. It happens over and over again, not every once in a while. It's a life-giving activity as opposed to a depletive one, and the impact you can have is orders of magnitude greater than you expect because you're not attached to a specific outcome. You're open to something unexpected, and that's what innovation is, is open to an unexpected outcome. And the thing that really excites me is the students have gone on to continue their projects and start companies. Like one startup of an alternative lighting company has provided lighting to over $25 million people around the world. And that's a significant impact. And we've had innovations in healthcare that our students have done and um, in news readership and a lot of other things. And we didn't really have an agenda on those innovations. We had an agenda on nurturing the innovators. And I've been just struck by how you can create a culture of innovation by focusing on the innovators, not the innovations. And I think that's a, that's a bit of a, a really interesting question to ask. How does this work in a big organization? Um, Very it, impressive. It be, yeah. Yep. We're going to ask Sam Yen, how does it work in a big organization? <laughs> Sam, your thoughts on focusing on the innovators. And I know you have a point of view about the world needing more designers. So, Sam, why don't we go into that and just keep this party going. Talk to me. 
Yeah, so you know, I, I, it, it's it's what George is talking about. It, you know, how do you create that culture of innovation, especially in large organizations, right? And most of us that that work in large organizations have, you know, the, the organizations are large because the organizations have a lot of history and it's grown and expanded over time. And you know, there have been set processes that have uh, that have dictated how you know the organization has grown. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's one thing to 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 focus in on the innovators. As, as George mentions, and, and you know, bring up that sense of creative, creative confidence you know, throughout the entire organization, and to make sure that you know people actually feel confident that when their CEO, when their executives ask them to think out of the box, they actually have um, methodological, digital uh, approach to actually uh, to, to think about that and, and to actually uh, execute on that. But on the other hand. You know, we found you know at SAP, you know, it's, it's we've been on a journey. It's it's taken us you know quite a while to really adopt and embrace design thinking and roll it out into our large organization. And I think what's critical here is creating that environment, you know, that environment to allow innovators with their with their newfound sense of confidence and their new techniques to, to understand and edit the world, as Jason says, uh, to be able to to do their practice and and to and to do it in a way where. The rest of the organization understands that this is meaningful. This is ultimately going to lead to, to great results, happier customers, and you know ultimately um, you know better business results and better results for the entire organization. Um, so setting that that culture, um, a lot of it is is a sense of values. Um, you know, under you know, making sure that people understand that this is a valuable part of the innovation process. Part of that is processes, changing the process in which you know you're, you're doing your business, you're creating new products, you're introducing new services into the world, and part of it is also physical. You know, like like George was also mentioning, you know, we've we've learned a lot from the D school in terms of creating a space uh, that fosters that sense, that environment for innovation. Um, and once you create that kind of culture, that kind of an environment, it also helps you to recruit the types of people, the innovators, as George was saying, to join your organization and continue and, uh, and magnify that impact. Thank you, Sam. I, I want to talk about a ratio you sent me in your notes. I don't think we've touched on that yet. Yeah. You say the, for consumer app teams, the ratio between designers to developers or designers to developers is generally 1 to 10. Is your goal to shift that? Is that something that George can help with at the D School, something that Jason can help with at Mark 1? How do we move that number, or do we yeah, need I, to? So, so specifically in the, in the IT industry, you know, I feel that we're go- we're we're having we're we're in the middle of a shift um, from features and functionality, which which is, which has been king for 20, 30, 40 years, uh, to now one which is uh, more experience based. Um, experience is is more important now more than ever, and I think it has to do with you know the, you know what people have called the consumerization of IT. You've you've got these great easy to use apps on mobile devices, and people expect the same out of the business software that they touch. And, and the ratios really come from, you know, so if we look at um, a design or a development team that develops these consumer applications, you know, usually you have one or two designers um, as part of a, you know, 10-person development team, you know, a rough ratio of, let's say, 1 to 10. When I look at SAP and enterprise software in general, you know, that ratio is more like 1 to 100, which seems not so good until you actually look at large organizations and their IT departments. And that ratio is more like 1 to 1,000, especially if you include the IT partners that the IT organizations also work with. Right? So if you look just at SAP's customers, you know, we have 50,000 large you know, global 2,000, you know, global 2,000, but global type of, types of customers. 
50,000 customers, if, if we want to move that 1 to 1,000 ratio just to SAP's ratio of 1 to 100, that's half a million designers that we need in our industry. If we want to move to that consumer ratio of 1 to 10, that's 5 million designers uh, that are needed in, in, in the IT mm. industry. So, so, so it's a huge number, but at the same time, you know, I'm not expecting designers, quote-unquote, to, to fall out of the sky and, uh, and, and, and be able to staff you know, all the corporate IT needs in, in the next couple of years. So I think, um, I, I, think it's, um, I, I think this is where design thinking really comes into place. Um, I read a, there was an article in Fast Company magazine over, earlier this summer, which was a, an ex-Apple designer who was trying to demystify the design process at Apple. And what he said was um, Apple didn't have you know, in his, his opinion, the most designers or, or even, you know, the best designers, you know, in, in his humility. Uh, but what he did say was Apple did have this design thinking culture where, where experience matters. And no matter if, if you were a designer or you're a business person or you're a technology person, you understood the value of going through this design process and at the end of the day creating this end-to-end experience for your end user. Thank you, Sam. I, I'm going to go back to the beginning, uh, Jason, then George, and Sam, and ask you all a question. We haven't talked about who. We've talked about innovators, a loose term. We've talked about D, the designer with a capital D. My question to all of you is, do you see an influx of energy and innovation and creative confidence, I know that term came up already, in the influx of, I'm going to use the M word, the millennials into the workforce, and do you see it, this this creative confidence coming from other generations, because we've had many shows here on our HR Trends with Game Changers series talking about the fact that we now have four generations in the workplace working side by side, sort of, kind of, with some reverse mentoring going on and trying to learn from and teach each other. So, Jason, let me dial back, circle back to you, and let's go through the whole panel. Where is this new energy going to come from? Where are these new designers and these new innovators and the people who value this? Are they coming from the young people coming into the workforce, or can they be tapped at any generational point? Jason, thoughts? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. I think I think it, it's several things to consider <clears throat> one um you know i'm in I, i'm in an interesting position because i'm kind of like at the very tail beginning of what would be considered a millennial and and i always feel weird because i'm stuck in the middle between these generational shifts myself mm-hmm. one thing that i think needs to happen is a shared lexicon um, a shared language that is multi-generational and that's the first approach because you know when, when we talk about creative confidence what i really like to focus on is creative competence and creativity can be a competency rather than an attitude because the younger generation, they focus solely on the, the extroverted attitude of creativity, the posturing, the look, the feel, the vibe, the energy of what creativity means. And then when you zoom out and you look at more savage generations that have more maturity and more life experiences, they're a little bit more centered. So I think one of the great things about the design thinking process is it creates a vocabulary for people like me who have a design background to communicate with people who may not feel that they have a creative background. So I think that's the first piece that can help with the, the multi-generational aspects of your question. The second one is having people look at design as, as a sport, as a team sport, where everyone has a position to play. Um, right now, designers, you know, Sam mentioned earlier, you know, we're typically looked at um, towards the end of the process, like make it pretty. But when you put us at the beginning for the thinking part, the really curious question part, the digging deep and collaboration through learning and shared experiences versus collaboration just through output of work, then you, you actually create um, a shared experience and a bond where everybody is accountable 
versus responsible for design. I think accountability is the thing that breeds that multi-generational, cross-generational uh, approach to, to design. And then the third piece is simply saying, like, hey, you know, um, there is value in experience, meaning life experience, because life experience more often than not breeds discernment. And discernment and design is one of the things that people don't talk about the most. Great design is like sculpture. It's reductive. You get a block of marble, which is essentially a problem. And then you chip away, chip away, chip away, chip away until you get the problem down to its simplest form, which is some, sometimes an unmet need or, or interesting uh, insight. And then you finish that insight and that need. You kind of polish and refine it through iteration, through exploration and ideation. But most times people look at design as like you get clay and you just kind of build up, build up, build up, and you add stuff on there. And so I think the thing that can be really useful is when you get people of different generations in the room and you allow them to flex um, or wax poetic about their life experiences and how they view problem solving, that can build a common level, uh, excuse me, a common ground where that shared lexicon of what the D school has created with the process, it allows us to all be able to communicate in the same direction because that's the difficulty. Our industry, meaning design, we don't have a shared vocabulary, um, essentially. So when you take an engineering course at engineering school, chances are if you transfer to another school, you can pretty much jump right in and learn the same thing. It's not the same way for design, but I think we're getting to a place where it is a shared vocabulary, which then allows for that multi-generational um, kind of cross-pollination of thought, which is what essentially Sam is trying to do at SAP and, and, and the things that, that they're doing over at the D school. So I'm excited of where it's going because um, – we need it. We need all people to participate in the sport of design. You know what? We're we're seven minutes till the end of the show, and this is typically our crystal ball predictions round. So I'm going to start with Jason with where you just were. <laughs> I need a one-sentence wrap-up from you on your predictions for the generational aspect, multi-generational aspect of where design thinking methodology is going. And then we're going to go to George for his wrap-up. I can give George two minutes and Sam two, and then we might have a minute left for a bonus question. So, Jason, wrap up with a prediction. Sorry to do this, but we just need to slide into home base here. Talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my prediction for the future design is that you will have uh, offices, government offices, that are basically tasked with monitoring design's impact on GDP around the world very, very soon. I think countries will start to realize the impact to import exportation, to micro-macroeconomic trends, and design will be something that isn't a job but a function of government that is uh, monitored and scaled and transferred throughout society. Thank you very much, George Kimball. I can give you two minutes. Predictions, anything you want to talk about, but give me at least one juicy prediction on the future of the D School or if we're still going to be at, we're going to have a, somebody create these gorgeous sweatshirts with capital D for designer on the front and the back. <laughs> talk to me, George Kimball. Go ahead. Predictions. No, I, I think we're going we're gonna to move from a, a time where we think that um, creativity is done by some part of the population and some things are designed to this place where we realize that everyone's creative and everything's designed. Everything meaning like a business model is designed, a hospital experience design, our education is designed, how we uh, organize our home, all those things. And so if we go to a place where everyone's creative and everything's designed, I think that forces a complete recasting. This is, I don't know how far we're looking out, <laughs> 10 years, a complete recasting of what we understand, mm-hmm. complete recasting of what we understand school to be in education, what we understand work to be, and what we understand our life to be. Instead of like school just being the first phase of our life where we go learn and then, and then we leave school and stop learning and just go work and home being the place where we recover from both of those, to me, learning is something that happens 
your entire life, not just in school. And work, the ability to apply your creative energies towards impacting your community and the world should not be something that our kids should wait, have to wait for out in the workplace. They should be involved in projects in their schools, so project-based learning, and they should see the impact right away. So the projects and the, and the learnings, is, and my hunch is, will exist um, through our learning systems and our, and our organizations um, and towards a place where everyone feels creative and everything's, everything's designed. Thank you, George Kemble. I'm going to read a quick quote from you before we go to Sam's predictions. You said in your notes, most kids start school feeling creative, but few survive school feeling that way. This <laughs> needs to change. This needs to change. Bravo. Sam Yen, talk to me. I can give you two full, whole, robust minutes for your predictions any year in the future. Where, How far ahead can you see? Yeah, I, whenever I'm asked about predictions, I, I think back to Alan Kay from Xerox Park and his quote, you know, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And I think, you know, you've got three people on your panel that are really, you know, looking hard to, to invent, to, to invent the future, to, to, to really bring this, this notion of design thinking, uh, into, into, into society, into our organizations. And, uh, my prediction for the future, um, is, is really that, uh, you know, what George is doing kind of in, in schools, Extends, you know, beyond your 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 formal education and goes into into the workplace, into into the rest of your life. I've heard George use the term, you know, the the, the notion of a lifelong learner before, and I, I think that's that's really going to be the case um, in in the case in, in in on the topic of design thinking. So that you know, in organizations, in businesses, it's not just going to be you know your analytic capabilities that's going to be valued. It's also going to be you know your your design capabilities. This this analytical thinking and design thinking, and being a holistic. Person Person by having kind of both sides, that's going to be valued more and more. And you know, the people that come out of school are going to have it, but the people that are in organizations and in businesses today will seek uh, to learn that and, and create a culture so that the next generation leaders will have an easier environment to, to really kind of bring this within their organizations. Thank you, Sam. I have a bonus question for my panel. I'm springing this on you. Let's see how creative you are. Will the term design thinking be replaced by something else more, quote, unquote, innovative in the next five years, let's say by 2020? If it happens, what do you propose it would be? Instead of design thinking, maybe that's going to get kind of old. What would we call it going forward? Jason Maiden, quickly, what would you call it? Uh, you know, um, I've heard several phrases thrown around, but for me, I would just say design doing. You know, um, thinking is part of it, but doing the outcome, you know, really that courage that George talked about earlier, just really incentivizing people to take action. So I would say something, something along the lines of design action, design doing. That's perfect. If we had the sweatshirt, Jason, design on the front with a capital D and doing on the back with a capital D. We've got it. Thank you very much. We just designed a sweatshirt. George Kimball, what do you propose for the new version of design thinking in 2020? What would it be? Well, I think we I think we use the term for long as so long as it's a got it's like integrative force for this emerging creative uh, community. But for me, uh, design thinking is an interim term like um, horseless carriage. So when before the automobiles called came out, we didn't know what to call them. We didn't know to call them automobile or car, and we didn't just come out and say, "Here's this new thing, a car." People wouldn't know what that was. So the what we used to call them was a, a horseless carriage. So people knew it was like something they knew. Are familiar with a carriage but without a horse so to me design thinking is like that is we're moving we are doing something like design in other words it's creative and it has Im impact in the world but it's it's a little bit different than design that is it's maybe everything at design so uh, i don't know what we're going to <laughs> okay um, I, I don't think we know what the word automobile is um in one way maybe just the word design we'll come back to that but we recast the word design and everyone would feel like it's something they do 
Thanks, George. I have to, I have to give Sam two seconds because we're almost out of time. Thank you, Sam Yen. What would we be calling design thinking in 2020? One word, one sentence. Talk to me. I, I think I like the term creative confidence that's coming out of the D school. It, it really summarizes uh, the, the you know the, the the topic very well. I love that too. Thank you so much. Great panel, Jason Maiden at Mark One, formerly Nike. Thank you so much for sharing all of your great thoughts. George Kimball at the Stanford D School. Very privileged to have the three of you. And Sam Yen, pleasure to meet you. We haven't met yet at SAP, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. A shout out to our sponsor for this series, David Fowler, and his sidekick today is Katie Mosier, who assembled this phenomenal panel. And a shout out to Brad and the Business Channel team here. And let's see, this is the end of our broadcast week. We did four live shows this week. I'll be back Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern with HR Trends with Game Changers. Interesting topic on burnout. What is it? Who's struggling with it? How do we get rid of it or make it easier? And let's see, it's time for me to do my call to action. So here you go. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another edition of The Future of Business with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP Services. Have a great one. (music) Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. And please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.